Welcome back to America Speaks. I am so excited today to welcome Chris Burnett. Having Chris on our show gives all of us a unique opportunity to get clarity on climate disruption. Chris got his degree in chemistry specializing in earth science from the University of California, San Diego, and Chris worked at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography for a number of years and was a bargaining representative for the UPTA CWA Local 9119. Chris hosts the weekly radio show Indie Media on air on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and has for a long time been an organizer in anti-authoritarian movements and has for many years now been a voice for issues that the mainstream media does not focus on. Chris, we are so grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you today because you will truly enlighten all of us on what we are facing with climate disruption. Well, thank you for having me on your program and for talking about these issues. It's my pleasure to do so, although I'm afraid that the data that we're seeing around the issue of climate disruption is very disheartening, and it's one that even scientists who are studying the issue are having to deal with their own emotional reaction to what they're seeing. And in fact, oftentimes when you hear about what the reaction is, that it's often associated with the five stages of grief. It's a very bleak picture on the issue that you're asking me about, which is climate disruption, anthropogenic climate disruption. I I do like to borrow from Dar Jamail, who, as far as I know, coined that term because it's an accurate one. It says that anthropogenic means that it's a human crisis that we have caused through industrialization and the burning of CO2 and releasing other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But anyways, so climate disruption, that's really what it's about. It's not just about quote unquote change or global warming. I don't think those terms are accurate enough. And the reason I say that is we are now officially in the Anthropocene, or Anthropocene, however you like to say it, officially, meaning that it's recognized by the scientific community due to the fact that we can now measure human influence within the geological record, I believe starting in 1945. So I think this decision last year is very recent. I want to just remark that the underlying critical responsibility as you say in your stunning paper of May 13th, 2016, the Anthropocene versus the Capitalocene, a reflection on the question, what have I done? You state that there is no substitute for understanding the historical forces of capitalism that has brought us to the edge. And I really want to demystify this sense that this is sudden. So can you just give us a way to trace the fact that this has been a long time in coming? And why have we become so blind to this? That's a hard question to answer. The second part of that question is a hard question to answer. But the first one is most measurements that we have seen to understand how rapidly changing the climate system is, the biosphere is, 
have happened since the Industrial Revolution, or you know, pre-levels from the Industrial Revolution, roughly around 1850. So this has been changing constantly, and it's reached a point uh, where we'll probably go into nonlinear territory, where we'll see nonlinear feedback loops. But there's a lot of reasons for it. It's primarily the burning of CO2 and fossil fuels. But it's not just fossil fuels. It's also uh, animal agriculture, which actually people don't really realize that is arguably responsible for as much CO2 emissions as fossil fuels. And by animal agriculture, I mean the production, the industry of producing animals for human consumption. That has a lot of impacts on the environment from deforestation to the release of toxic wastes into the groundwater, into the land, into the oceans, and other effects. But animal agriculture is a big one. One paper in 2008 argued that it's actually 50% responsible for CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, uh, more so than fossil fuels. I think it's somewhat debatable, but I'd say it's equal to at least fossil fuels. The other effects are stunning. When you release that much CO2 into the atmosphere, it gets absorbed by the oceans. And in fact, the oceans are serving as a buffer for the effects of what we're seeing. And I, it's estimated, I believe, that 50% of greenhouse gases have been absorbed by the ocean, some very high number. We've seen from a paper in 2003, 90% of the big fish in the ocean are gone. A recent paper by a professor named Goulson from the University of Sussex, they came out with a study saying 75% of the insects are gone in the last few decades. And we're seeing uh, about 50% of vertebrae on planet Earth are gone with all of this within the last three to four decades. I think you mentioned that there are approximately 150 to 200 species going extinct every day. That's right. 150 to 200 species are going extinct every day. These are estimates. But it's at least a thousand times the normal background rate of species extinction, maybe as high as 10,000 in some cases. So extinction is a normal process. Is there any possible reversal? I don't know. I'm sort of now of the opinion that it's really about mitigating the coming disaster. Because mm -hmm. like I say, most of the effects we're seeing now are from CO2 absorbed something like 30 years ago. So the CO2 that we've burned into the atmosphere in the last 30 years is yet to be really felt. But things are coming undone at an alarming rate. The IPCC itself is far too conservative in its estimates. I mean, we're talking about these are government scientists meeting you know, via UN process. And they used to estimate that we would see the Arctic sea ice loss in 2100, 10 years ago. We're potentially going to see this Arctic sea ice loss in the next few years. Every one of their predictions was off by quite a bit. It was off by orders of magnitude. So we're talking not in 50 years, not in 100 years. We're seeing a lot of what they're predicting happening now. Do you think that was designed? No. So this lack of calculation is a surprise to them too? I think it's because of the process itself. You know, there's sort of a consensus process, is my understanding, and that even though these outlying predictions were very good science, the process tends to be very conservative in getting everybody to agree to what's actually going to happen. So there's dissent or disagreement. It tends to go towards the more conservative estimates, and I just think it's the process itself. There was a concern about the effects on the economy, right? We're talking about a capitalist system that it's built into its DNA that it has to grow or it will die. You know, this is about generating profit year in and year out on a finite planet with finite resources. So the logic of the capitalist system is to expand or die. And that expansion, it's now coming to a head in a way that we're actually seeing it visually and feeling it physically. All these systems in the biosphere are coming to a crisis point, and we can go through some of those. 
this is a quote from Darja Mail, the earth has lost approximately half of all its coral reefs in just the last three decades. A quarter of marine species depend on the reefs. Reefs provide the sole source of protein for more than one billion people, and they are now vanishing before our eyes. And we can talk about the loss of 90 million trees in the Sierra Nevadas in the last few years due to drought and a beetle infestation. We can talk about the Arctic sea ice loss. We could talk about the release of methane in the methane hydrates and the permafrost. We're talking about fires and droughts and the acidification of the ocean, which is a huge point. Both the acidification and the deoxygenation of the warming oceans is a huge issue. One thing I really need to point out is that phytoplankton are responsible for 70% of the oxygen that we breathe. And we've lost nearly 40% of the phytoplankton in the last 30 years. 70% of the oxygen we breathe comes from phytoplankton, and we've lost 40% of the phytoplankton. So think about what that means. If we lose the oceans, we die. A researcher named Goulson from University of Sussex said, in that paper about insects, the insects die, we die. We rely on them for you know growing our food, for maintaining ecosystems. This is like a silent killer, if I could put it from a layman's perspective, because we are really truly not aware of this. Well, yes, this isn't being covered. It is a disaster unfolding before our eyes. And I do want to make one last point about the oceans, and that is that they're becoming massively acidified. One of the things that is not discussed very often is that the absorption of CO2 increases the amount of hydrogen ions in the ocean. And that number is estimated to be somewhere around 30% increase since the backdrop before the Industrial Revolution. And what that means is, is that you're decreasing carbonate in the oceans, which is used for sea life to create their shells, right? It's a vital process for the health of sea life from the smallest species all the way up to whales. The acidification of the oceans could eventually kill off all the sea life, or let's just say the great majority, which, again, we rely on. Human survival is dependent on the ocean. Well, I want to just read an excerpt from your paper, which really emphasizes the statistics here, which says that latest studies show that methane is approximately 100 times as potent as greenhouse gases, which you did refer to as CO2 over the first 10 years and 86 times over a 20-year period and 34 times over a 100-year period. So the majority of the uh, greenhouse gases that have been released are CO2 from industrial production. But methane has been released. The point about the methane is that there are massive quantities of methane trapped in the permafrost and in methane hydrates up in actually all over the planet. But, you know, oftentimes it's focused on the Arctic region because of the loss of sea ice. And what is feared is that these quote unquote methane burps are, could happen and they could happen at a massive scale. There's a researcher up there, a Russian scientist, and I'm forgetting her name at the moment, but she's been studying this very closely. So the idea is, is the fear is, is that if we have massive methane releases, to give you a perspective, is that methane is so much more potent a greenhouse gas than CO2, that just a much, you know, a much smaller quantity, something I think on the order of 50 gigatons, but again, I have to check my numbers, but that potentially, that's what she's warning about. And to put perspective in the paper, I think that, you know, that's a third of all CO2 that has been released. Well, I have to back you up for a second, because isn't the Paris Agreement worthless, given all of this additional and far more critical analysis and research? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the, the Paris Agreement is worthless, because there's no enforcement mechanisms, right? It's like, we'll agree to do this, but, you know, you can't force us to do it. 
I guess I suppose there's something to be said for over 150 nations coming together and saying we need to do something about this. Yes, we do. But there's no enforcement mechanisms. But the other main problem is they're trying to cap the temperature rise, at, you know, ideally at 1.5 C or at 2 C, right? Well, the problem with that is James Hansen, as well as many other scientists, have said that 1 C should be our limit. In fact, perhaps 0.5 C was really the limit, which we passed some 30 or 40, 50 years ago. So the dangers above a 1 C world, and by 1 C I mean that's the average change above pre-industrial levels. A 1C is incredibly dangerous. A 1.5C is incredibly dangerous. And in fact, 2C may be unlivable. And we may see the loss of the ability to have steady agriculture. We may see this increasing acidification of the oceans. And we simply don't know. But one thing we do know, it's important to remind you, is that we do know about the last mass extinction event, which was the Permian mass extinction. It happened 252 million years ago. The primary kill mechanism for that extinction event, in which over 90 to 95 percent of species went extinct, was the acidification of the oceans. But this happened over, I think, thousands of years. It didn't happen as quickly as we are changing the face of this planet right now. Is there any kind of scientific breakthrough that could mitigate the rising acidification? I don't know that there's a way to mitigate it. I certainly don't know that answer. I don't think so. I also think the bigger question is, are we going to be able to stop capitalism and this economic system sooner rather than later? Because it will collapse. I mean, there's no question in my mind that there will be a collapse if we continue as we go forward. It's inevitable. You know, what are you going to profit from? You can't make profit on a dead planet. I want to go back to Hansen because I'm very interested in his studies. He is helping a group of young people throughout this country, and they are suing the United States for climate damage, the Children's Trust suit. He's actually advising them. They're the ages of 9 to 21. They are not looking at this as a national issue. They're looking at this, of course, as a global issue. Just give me a sense of how he perhaps can coalesce with these young people around any hope to create a respect that the problem is, of course, capitalism and what can be done. Well, I'm afraid that as much as I admire the tenacity and the will of these young people to use the court system to challenge U.S. policy, you know, I don't want to deter people from being active, but I also think that it's kind of like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I think that the real fundamental questions here are about the economic system and where we're headed as a civilization, really. Unfortunately, the deeper questions about, you know, what does nature have intrinsic value, it, that it's worthwhile and in and of itself, that it's not just there for us to use and extract and profit from and kill. I think the people that we need to be looking towards who have been caretakers of the land for generations are indigenous people. Look at what people were talking about at Standing Rock. You know, look what the indigenous folks in Chiapas have been saying for generations about protecting the land and their relationship to it. That what we're really talking about is a philosophical transformation of our life and our lifestyles and, and understanding that energy consumption, capital you know, requires energy for profit. If you look at any graph of the burning of fossil fuels, it's directly related to their profit index. They're in sync. What we need to talk about is de-escalation. We need to talk about reduction of energy use. 
unfortunately, there's this mantra of 100% renewables, but at what cost? 100% for what? Maintaining the current energy consumption levels? That's insane. That's totally insane. Renewables are fine, but at what level of consumption? Certainly not at the level we're using now. I do not want to empower uh, Raytheon and Caterpillar uh, bulldozers to use renewable uh, bulldozers. And I certainly don't want to empower the U.S. military to try to invent solar-powered tanks and bombers. Fundamentally, this is a question of, do we want to live in an empire? You know, of course, I'm sitting here in, in the United States from a privileged position of consumption, even though it may or may not consume a lot as an individual, but I live in a city that certainly has massive amounts of consumption. How do you import resources to millions of people without extracting them through force and violence? You know, fundamental questions about how we live as a civilization need to be addressed. Yeah, I am excited because there are young people now beginning to do this. Absolutely. I just feel that 99.9% of the planet is not having a voice. And, and of course, they're not educated. Well, I'd say that the population of the U.S. is pretty uneducated on these issues because of a corporate media system that ignores it at every possible turn. Um, in fact, I'd say the rest of the world is pretty well educated on climate change. Either they're directly in its path or they're not as indoctrinated or propagandized as we are here in the U.S. Absolutely. Bullseye. Because what you're reflecting on scientifically and environmentally, sociologically, I've actually heard from veterans that I've also interviewed, uh, Garrett Reppenhagen, who represents a group called Veterans Voice, because after they risked their lives for our country, fighting three and four tours of duty in Iraq, they started to become far more aware, being over in regions that they saw the destruction our military machine has on society. So now what they're doing is they are creating canoe excursions into the Arctic to see for themselves with their own eyes what the damage is in terms of both the setup of these large petrochemical companies and fossil fuel companies it just seems to me shocking how we can be this uneducated. <laughs> it is shocking. It really is. And, and what you're describing there is really important. Again, it's like coming to terms with a fatal disease. It's shocking when you first hear this information because most people, I think, if they don't outright reject climate disruption, then they're sort of thinking, well, that's something off in the future. You know, that's not something I have to worry about. Well, that's not true. That's not true anymore. And the data is coming in faster and faster. I mean, Dar Jamal, who I interview quite regularly on the show, has been covering this. Um, change is happening extremely rapidly. That's why we have to wake up. We have to change our consciousness. We have to understand the underlying forces, these economic forces that are driving the destruction of the biosphere, our way of living, our consumption. You know, everybody wants to do something individually, which is great. You know, I don't want to discourage people from acting out individually and buying light bulbs that are more healthy for the environment. But quite frankly, that's not really going to change the course of where we're headed. But if you want to do something individually, then stop eating meat and stop eating animal products and dairy. That's a greater contributor to uh, greenhouse gases than even fossil fuels, which is hard to believe, but it's true. 
There is a disconnect here, Chris, fundamentally, on everything I've been covering for America Speaks this year. And the disconnect really does boil down to toxic propaganda. And I don't want to sound like some extremist here, and I'm not. But when I'm feeling this from speaking to so many, and now today we have the privilege of an expert such as yourself whose life is pretty much devoted to not just the analysis, but to hanging on by our fingernails. How can we become more informed? What is there to do here on that alone? You know, it's such an important question. And, you know, I guess we do what we can do. We educate ourselves. We read up on the papers. We read the articles. People like Dar Jamail. Go to darjamail.net for starters. D-A-H-D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L dot net. And can you just describe to our listeners a little bit about Darjanel? Yeah, Darjanel is an independent investigative journalist. He started out and covering, you know, war correspondent. He went to, I think he was one of the first independent reporters in Iraq in 2003 or four. But he changed his entire focus to study climate disruption about six years ago, maybe, maybe longer. But I've been interviewing him on my show, uh, Indie Media on Air on KPFK, for years now. And we always chat about what's the latest research. That's a really good place to start. He's going to give it to you straight. And he's going to cover all the scientific papers. In fact, people call him crazy and uh, I don't know if the word conspiracy theorist has, has been applied to him, but I'm sure it probably has. But, you know, he points out very clearly he's been only covering the science. And he does that very carefully because he understands he's in a media market that is dominated by corporate media, by corporations. And they are a propaganda system and make no mistake about it. I mean, I don't even watch corporate news or information anymore. I, I see it for what it is. You know, they're an arm of the state. It's become so bad that we know that the... Pentagon budget includes billions of dollars to um, propagandize the U.S. population. In fact, Obama passed a law uh, the day before Christmas in 2016 allowing for the U.S. government to engage in propaganda directed at U.S. citizens. If that was not a gift to Trump, I don't know what was, right? Obama was in some ways as dangerous as George W. Bush, if not more, in what he did, giving the military the powers that he did. Chris Hedges' lawsuit against the Obama administration for the laws about detaining U.S. citizens. I'm forgetting the name of that, but it'll come to me. Anyways, the, the point is, is that we are propagandized, and the U.S. government is involved in that propaganda. So is the corporate media. They're in bed. You know, that's why they trot out. Uh, 99 generals when a war starts on CNN or MSNBC and one anti-war protester is made to look like a fool. I mean, this is straight up Chomsky, Edward Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of the Mass Media. I mean, read that book, 1986 or 88. That's the methodology, right? We live in a highly indoctrinated society. And one of the quotes from that book is, propaganda is to democracy what violence is to totalitarianism. And that means that in the U.S., the state doesn't not normally rely on force to make people believe things. They use propaganda. In a totalitarian society, they don't care what you believe because everybody knows that there's a stick, you know, a um, police club behind any resistance. But the point is, that's the nature of the, the society we live in. It's highly propagandized. And I think there's a mystique that people are informed, from my point of view, this false 
equivalency of feeling that activism is thriving because of social media. I think there's a constant repetition of fact. There's a constant skewing and misconception of the fact that by tweeting or Instagramming, you're joining the conversation. And what I feel, the more I unpack these issues and truly get a sense of what is not being reported, the more I realize how disappointing social media is today. I mean, there should be such outrage on social media over just climate damage alone, right? Well, absolutely. But social media is is many things. And there are moments at which uh, organizers and radicals and people who are concerned about participatory democracy or what have you can get their messages out, which is a wonderful thing. But let's not forget that these massive systems, Google and Facebook primarily, are designed as surveillance tools. And we know now that Google was incubated with the help of the CIA. We know also that the CIA's InQtel fund, it's a private fund for investing in tech startups, um, a venture capital firm. It's called InQtel. They invested early in Facebook. In fact, Quite frankly, the U.S. government probably has offices at Facebook headquarters and Google. Anything you do on these systems is being looked at. They are spy tools. They are not for social movements. And they shouldn't be used for social movements, in my opinion. You know, I come out of indie media. You know, we developed our own systems and our own infrastructure because we came out of a movement in the 90s which understood that corporate media was a tool and function of a capitalist class. That it was a propaganda system designed to, you know, control the way we think about the world. So when the internet was very new and very fresh, and we saw it as potentially a liberatory platform, we immediately, and many of us involved, we built our own servers locally and we shared resources and we had control of the technology. It was all open source. And I still believe that today. In fact, while the corporate media is still a problem, now what we have to deal with is basically these massive censoring tools and surveillance systems called Facebook and Google. And in fact, there is a call out that Indie Media made last year in Montreal to actually address this and build a new movement to actually own our own infrastructure, create our own systems. But what would that look like, Chris? I mean, if you look at the age now of this removal of net neutrality, etc., which have gotten a lot of people up in arms, what would it look like? How could this be done? I think it's so vital to consider that this is necessary. Well, it takes a combination. It takes a social movement. But technically, it's not hard to do, right? Net neutrality is a big problem, and we have to fight it. I'm not surprised that they passed it, but it is shocking what it will mean for uh, the Internet. Uh, a lot of people misunderstand really what that's about, and it basically says that the cable systems and their infrastructure cannot give preference to certain websites or others. And it certainly can't charge you know, for preference for traffic because they built up massive systems. That includes all kinds of fiber networks. And so the combination, when you get your internet through a cable system, once your traffic goes through their systems, they can slow it down or or speed it up, depending on where you're going and what you're trying to visit. And they can probably block websites, too. Let's face it. That's the ultimate sanitizing of our freedom of speech. Right. And this needs to be fought. We cannot give up on net neutrality. And unfortunately, just to say, it's also just in the United States. Oh, well, China has its own restrictions as well. But to answer your other question about how do we organize around this, first, again, it takes a social movement and a wake-up call to understand that these people, Facebook and other social media platforms, are the enemy. They are not there to serve the interest 
of any kind of revolutionary movement. They may unwittingly do so. They may unwittingly have, because of their massive platform, allowed for certain types of organizing to happen. But as we go towards into the future, they can put tighter controls on what they want to put tighter controls on. And we do not want to trust them for our communication infrastructure as a social movement, period. We have the, the people and the know-how. We still can build servers and we can still host them at places outside of this country and other data centers around the world. Uh, we can take advantage of these network resources. And in fact, that's why Indie Media, to me, is still a vital social movement. And we have to sort of reinvigorate it and take advantage of people from you know all over the world acting in solidarity and creating a, an alternative form of communication infrastructure. How would we protect that, though? Let's say all of us were to subscribe to indie media as a platform, as opposed to Google, etc. What would that look like? And how would we protect it from being vulnerable? The way we protect it is by decentralizing it. Servers can live in Brazil. They can live in Europe. They can live in Africa. They can live in Canada. They can live in Mexico. They can live in Australia. In fact, they did. Indie Media's network had over 150 collectives worldwide. I'm saying that we can have that sort of decentralized infrastructure available. That's what the beauty of the Internet is. That makes it very difficult for one government to shut down the entire infrastructure. But more importantly, we're not going to provide mail services necessarily. But there are groups out there that do that. Social movement groups like RiseUp.net. They provide resources to the activist. The more I reflect on what we're really talking about today is we have a war. We're at war with how this planet is deconstructing. And I think that to me, every time I conduct an interview on anything related to this topic, from veterans to indigenous healers, to people outside the country who are impacting our food growth, to people who are dealing with refugee crises surrounding the world, with people of lower income who don't know what to do because they're having such a hard time surviving. I don't have words to express how we can be discussing all these other issues when things are so dangerous in terms of our oceans, our air, our flora, our fauna, our species. Do you? No, that's the issue of our times. And the question I'd ask is, do you want to live on a livable planet? Do you want your children and grandchildren to live on a livable planet? Do you want to have clean food and water and air in the future? Then you need to get engaged in this central question. You know, the prize that I'm looking for is a livable biosphere. I need to deal with the fundamental critiques of capitalism and the state and our relationships to each other and really talk about mitigation of what's coming. This system and the people who run it including the Democrats, the ruling class of these systems, these capitalist nation-state systems, imperialist systems, they're not going to give up their power without a fight. In fact, they will never give up their power and their privilege. You know, they'd let it collapse before they give up their power and privilege. We don't have time to quibble about this. Like I say, I don't believe the people in power will stop. I just gave a talk at a Converging Storms Action Network and it was wonderful. And, you know, there's a lot of young people who are very concerned about this. They want to be active and they are active. So I think what we have to talk about is, well, let's do two things. Let's try to stop what's happening while it's happening, but let's prepare for the worst. I'm not saying that all of them are taking this position, but I'm just saying what I would say to people is be active, get involved immediately. If, if you think that 
you want to vote for somebody you think you know you're going to put your power in other people's hands go for it i'm more of like a libertarian eco-socialism or an anti-authoritarian sort of mutual aid support organizing through networks building our principles of unity up and then getting together with people globally and then acting on it the biggest problem i have with organizations like 350 is they don't come out very forcefully against the economic system they're in bed often with the democratic party but i appreciate their organizing through networks i think that what they're doing is very important well i have to say in closing that you say something quite stunning in your article but it does boil down to this simplistic thought arguably doing nothing is a crime against life. And when you say so delightfully, real hope comes from people looking at each other from side to side, not from bottom to top. And I feel that we may not see the shining example of what is going to transform this crisis, this disaster. We're living in a disaster. But I do feel that there has to come a sense that we all hold on to, that we should be looking to each other from side to side. I mean, we have lost our integrity as a species. And so to at least go down, reclaiming that integrity would be something, wouldn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. There are wonderful human beings out there, and I want to fight with them to save as much of this biosphere as we can from its destruction. As we spoke today, I couldn't help but recall what my dear friend Norman Patrick Brown told me when I interviewed him for America Speaks. Norman is a renowned filmmaker, a widely respected Navajo leader and activist. He said to me that there is no discussion that any of us can have on the future of the planet unless we pay attention to the indigenous prophecy. It's the Hopi belief, it's our belief that if you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live on earth, it's likely you will not make it. When the European first came here, Columbus, we could drink out of any river. If the Europeans had lived the Indian way when they came, we'd still be drinking out of water because the water is sacred. The air is sacred. Our DNA is made of the same DNA as the tree. The tree breathes what we exhale. When the tree exhales, we need what the tree exhales. So we have a common destiny with the tree. We are all from the earth. And when the earth, the water, the atmosphere is corrupted, then it will create its own reaction. Mother is reacting. In the Hopi prophecy, they say the storms and floods will become greater. To me, it's not a negative thing to know that there will be great changes. It's not negative. It's evolution. When you look at it as evolution, it's time. Nothing stays the same. You should learn how to plant something. That's the first connection. You should 
Treat all things as spirit. Realize that we are one family. It's never something like the end. Just like life, there is no end to life. Chris, I want to thank you so much for today's conversation. For many of us, this is a reality check. I want to ask you to tell our listeners, how do they reach you? Do you have a website? It's the best way to get a hold of me. It's Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at IndieMedia.org. That's I-N-D-Y, Media.org. Again, I want to invite everyone to subscribe to America Speaks podcast. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Anchor, and Libsum. And please get in touch with us. This is your time to be loud, angry, active, and heard. Let us know if you have subjects that we have not covered that you would like to hear about. And a big announcement today. You can now find my forthcoming book, We Protest, Fighting for What We Believe In, on Amazon under Rizzoli Books in a pre-sale offer before it is released on March 10th. And stay tuned for all the exciting news on my book signings, speaking engagements, and exhibitions across the country. We are a powerful voice, each and every one of us. And if you protested for anything in the past three years, I bet you may find yourself in my book. And lastly, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember... America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice.